listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is Job 42, 7 through 17. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, and my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my, and my servant Job has done. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemimah, and the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations, and Job died old and full of days. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Carrie, for that reading. So we're at the end of the book of Job, you guys. Who's excited? Anybody? No. <laughs> uh, you did miss a lot. Well, welcome back, Zach. Um, we've been in the book of Job for six weeks now. I mean, honestly, I feel like it went way too fast. I could have spent like 20 weeks here, but that probably would have gotten a little dark. Um, but we are, we are at the end of the story. We're not actually finished with Job, though. Um, we have one more week in this book next Sunday. Look forward to that. That's going to be fun. Uh, we're going to do something special. Uh, but for today, we are at the end of the story of Job. And when we started this book six weeks ago, um, I pointed us to two questions that are at the heart of this book, two questions Job is really wrestling with. It's not why do we suffer or why do bad things happen to good people, right? Job doesn't really answer that. But there are two other questions this book is grappling with. Is God just, and is righteousness worth it? Is God just? Can there really be a just creator of the universe when the world itself is so unjust, when life is so messed up? And is righteousness worth it? Is it worth it to worship God, pursue wisdom, follow Jesus, if we're still going to end up suffering anyway? Those are the two questions at the heart of this book. We've been working with these questions back and forth for weeks now, and as we come to the end of the story, I would totally understand if your answer to those questions is no. 
Remember, Job is a wisdom book. Wisdom doesn't just hand us the answer. Wisdom presents us with stuff. It bombards us with stories, proverbs, ideas, and it forces us to work out the answers for ourselves. That is what it actually takes to grow in wisdom. And I would understand if you take one look at the end of this book and say no to both these questions. I would get it. I might even resonate with you a little bit. God restores Job, right, um, giving him twice as much as he had before. That's nice. He still lost his kids, though. He gets 10 new kids, but that is not a fair exchange, if you ask me, especially not for Job's wife, right? Like 20 pregnancies, that's got to be its own kind of torture. I want to see the sequel of this book about Job's wife, right? Um, That's messed up. If I'm Job, it's like, you know, God, you can keep the oxen, you can keep the sheep, the camels, the donkeys, just give me my kids back. Amen. It's not a fair exchange. Job is restored. He takes a place of honor in society. Um, He lives to see four generations of his family before dying at the ripe old age of 140. Uh, He leaves an inheritance to his daughters, which was unheard of back then. Um, It probably speaks to Job's wealth. Um, and how much he had to pass on. It could also be that he was a feminist, though, and I kind of like that interpretation, personally. Um, But even with all of that, Job still carries the trauma of all he's been through. He still has the scars from the blisters. His relationship with his friends, uh, his wife, his relationship with God will probably never be the same after this. So often we hear this story in like a Sunday school context as this like nice little tale about a guy who loses everything but then gets it all back and we don't really think, we don't really process the actual experience and the trauma that Job endured. So I get if your answer to these questions is no. But I do think there are some signs of grace in this text that point us toward yes. Yes, God is just. And yes, righteousness is worth it. Um, For one, first sign of grace, God takes responsibility for what Job has endured, for what he's been through, and God pays restitution. Uh, Verse 11, it'll be up here on the slides. Then there came to Job all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. We'll talk about that, that last line in a minute, but a couple things. First, where were all these friends when Job was suffering? Where were they when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were gaslighting him, telling him it was all his fault? Did, did these folks just like leave? Did they just peace out and then come back when Job had all his money back? That's not good friends. That's, that's a little bittersweet. More alarmingly though is that concluding phrase, all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Um, I do want to note that the word evil here could also be translated disaster. Uh, Same word, and I would actually like disaster as a much better translation theologically. I don't like to think of God sending evil on people. Um, But even with that, we know the story, right? Like You were here. We we read Job chapter 1 and 2. God did not bring evil on Job. Satan brought evil on Job. It was Hasatan, the heavenly prosecutor, who took everything from Job just to test him and see if he can get Job to turn on God. God didn't do it. And yet God takes responsibility anyway. 
In the Old Testament law, whenever you take something from someone, uh, the punishment is you have to give them back twice what you took. Uh, that or they stone you to death. There's, there's also that. Um, that, was, that was a dark joke, sorry. Um, <laughs> but you, you, if you take a cow or if you kill someone's cow in like an accident, you owe them two cows. Um, if you steal a flock of goats from your neighbor, you have to give them two flocks and so on. When God gives Job double what he lost, God is following the Old Testament law and restoring, God, uh, restoring Job for his losses. This is not some materialistic prize Uh, Job's not being rewarded for his suffering. This is God taking responsibility for the evil Job has been through and taking the required steps, the legally required steps, to set things right. Job, I know you lost everything, and it was under my watch. I might not be the one who took it from you, but it happened when you were under my care, and I'm sorry Let me make amends. God is giving Job a peace offering here. Not all that different from the seven flocks of things that he made Job's friends give him. In fact, God's giving him even more. God is saying, I'm sorry. We are never going to understand why there's so much pain and suffering and evil in the world. There's a a dozen different theories, probably more than that. Hundreds of books have been written on the topic. Some folks blame free will, right? It's all us. Um, Some people blame God. At the end of the day, we don't know why God allows the existence of evil. But what we do know is that God takes responsibility. God is truly sorry for the pain and the suffering we experience, and God is working to make things right. I remember when I was about nine years old, um, I was at my grandpa's house for a big family get-together, um, and I was out in the backyard with a baseball bat and some balls, and I'm like throwing the balls out in the air and hitting them into the backyard, and either my mom or my uncle or someone was out there catching them and throwing them back to me, and um, after many successful hits of the ball, uh, I missed one. I, I threw it up, I swung the bat, totally whiffed on it, and the bat flew out of my hands sailed across the yard where it nailed my three-year-old cousin Brandon in the face. Um, he's fine now. <laughs> he's, he's, he's 30. He's doing, he's doing good. Um, he's okay. Uh, and he was okay then. He didn't go to the hospital or anything. Um, but he did get a huge bruise on the side of his face. He was screaming bloody murder. And I, I was an absolute mess. I thought I had killed him. Um, you know, like everyone saw it go down. The adults knew that it was an accident. Uh, I'm pretty sure my aunt still wanted to kill me. Um, but I was, I was crying. I was upset. It ruined the entire day. Uh, I remember the rest of the day, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to give a peace offering, you know, giving him my toys to play with, trying to comfort him. He wants nothing to do with me. Um, and so I just carried this guilt for, for the, rest of the, the rest of the day, for 30 years later, apparently, too. Um, <laughs> sorry, Brandon. But Job, this story points us to a God who feels like that. A God who carries this immense sense of responsibility for the pain and the suffering of the world and who's working to set things right. A God who is ultimately going to give up his own son to make things right. The foundation of that is being set in Job. That's one little bit of grace in the end of the story. Um, A second bit of grace comes in verse 10, which I think we have on the slides. It's verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job 
when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Okay. That is not a literal translation of this verse. Just got to give you a heads up. Um, that comes straight out of our Bibles, New, New Revised Standard Version, my favorite translation of the Bible, really solid translation, but it's not literal. Um, the Hebrew of Job, Job 42.10 does not say that God restored the fortunes of Job. It actually says that God ended the captivity of Job, which is interesting. Like, you can kind of understand why the translators switched it, right? Because it, it doesn't really make sense. Job wasn't held captive. That's not the story. He's not, there's, no, there's no captivity here. Why is the narrator here at the end talking about captivity? Makes no sense until you think about the first audience of this story. Do we know of any people groups in the Bible that are held in captivity at any point? that ring any bells? The Israelites, and you mentioned Moses. Yeah, the Israelites, God's people. Scripture starts, the Old Testament starts, they are enslaved in Egypt, right by the second book of the Bible. And then the story ends with the people of Jerusalem being exiled to Babylon. They are taken captive to Babylon. This is a story that would have been told by Jewish exiles being held captive in Babylon. They would have remembered this story, repeated it, told it to their kids and their grandkids. And if you want to understand the captivity of the Jews in Babylon, think about what we did to the Native Americans, what the European settlers of this country, my ancestors, did to the Native Americans, and you have a sense of what the Babylonians did to the Jews. Stealing their land, killing their families and their neighbors, destroying their homes, forcibly relocating them, forcing their culture and language on their children, afflicting them with disease, and carrying them off to a place far from home. Do you see why a people living in captivity would resonate with the story of Job? They are Job. This is their story. Job is a reminder that God is in the business of setting captives free, freeing the prisoners, proclaiming favor to the oppressed. If God can end Job's captivity, if God can restore and redeem and rescue Job, maybe there's hope for us too. If if Job can find healing, If Job could come back from all this even stronger than he was before, maybe we can too. We might not live to see it. There's no guarantee that we'll be rescued. By the way, most of the Babylonians taking, or sorry, most of the uh, uh, people of Jerusalem taking captive died in captivity. They were there for 70 years. Most of them never went home. But maybe there's hope for our kids. Maybe there's hope for our people, future generations. Maybe God will restore us, bring us back to life. Maybe a God like that could even raise the dead. Which brings me to another big thing that's happening in this passage. 
uh, a detail that is really important to how the first Christians read this book. Um, I'm just going to tell you up front, it's, it's a bit of a stretch, and it's far from how most people have read and interpreted the book of Job. Uh, I'm going to tell you anyway, though, because I like it, and I think it's cool. You know, what, what's a little heresy if it's cool? Um, <laughs> but way back in Job chapter 1, we were told about Job's wealth. Um, this, is from, this is from the opening of the book, opening words. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. All you really need to know, oh, keep, keep that slide up, go, go back a slide, there we go. All you really need to know about this description is that this description of Job's wealth is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I know you probably don't know the exchange rate for camels uh, in the Bronze Age, <laughs> but let's just say he'd be the wealthiest person alive by a mile. Kings did not have this much livestock, okay? But pay attention now to the numbers when Job is restored. Now we'll show the next slide. This is from what Carrie just read from us, the end of the book, Job uh, 42. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice, important to note, twice what he had before. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Okay, it's a lot of numbers. Let's get them all up in a chart. That's helpful for me. Um, so we can see what we're actually looking at here. If you do a little math, you can see that the, the storyteller is mostly right. God gave Job twice as much as he had before. 7,000 sheep becomes 14, 3,000 camels becomes six, and so on. But what, what's missing? The kids. God doesn't double the number of Job's children. At the beginning of the story, Job had seven sons and three daughters. At the end of the story, Job has seven sons and three daughters. Why doesn't God double Job's kids? Because they're expensive. That's, that's good. I like that answer. So, so most people who've read this book over the centuries just ignore that part of the story. We, just don't, we don't talk about it. And that's the, other that's the other answer that's given often is when people die, they're still with us. So 10 plus 10 makes 20. Maybe they're right. Like, absolutely, that could be right. But for some of the folks who were reading the story at the time of Jesus, and especially for those first Christians who had witnessed the resurrected Christ firsthand, they had a different theory. Maybe God raised Job's kids from the dead. Again, I have to point out, the text does not say that. There's no mention of resurrection. Most people who've read this book do not interpret it that way. But what if God raised Job's kids from the dead, you guys? Seven and three, seven and three. Can't be a coincidence. And if there's anything that'd be better than getting 10 new kids or 20 new kids, it's gotta be the hope of resurrection. We're in the resurrection season right now. Um, I know like not everyone follows the church calendar, but uh, on the historical church calendar, Easter is not just a day, 
right? It's not, it's not one day where we have breakfast at church and then a rabbit shows up with eggs for some reason. Um, <laughs> but in, in the church calendar, Easter is a season. It lasts 50 days from Resurrection Sunday until Pentecost Sunday, which is next week. We're red for Pentecost, by the way. Which means that today is the seventh Sunday of Easter, the last week of the Easter season. And some of you have asked me as we've been in this series, why are we reading the book of Job? This dark story about a guy who loses everything right after Easter. Like, why read this depressing story at a time when things are supposed to be bright and cheerful? I'll tell you why, guys. Because the story of Job is a resurrection story. See if this sounds familiar. You got a tale about a blameless man, righteous, walks with God. He relates to God almost like a father and a son. But this righteous man endures suffering through no fault of his own because of some battle going on between God and Satan. This guy loses everything. His friends turn on him. His family abandons him. He loses all of his possessions, his health. This righteous man is stripped down to nothing. He's left on an ash heap, a a hill, to face death. This man goes through absolute hell, a level of suffering that is unimaginable for most of us, only to be rescued and restored by God. God redeems him, restores his fortunes, elevates him to a place of honor, raises him from death to life to give us hope and to show us that anything is possible. That story should sound familiar because it's the story of Jesus and Job. Job is a resurrection story that points us to Christ. And we need resurrection stories because the world is not just. Job never receives justice, not really. True justice would be if Job never had to suffer in the first place. Even with all the livestock, the kids, the reparations, that's all great. Our society could learn a lot from this story about the importance of reparations, but it's still not justice. Justice would be if we lived in a world where this stuff didn't happen in the first place. That would be justice. I'm reminded of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and the prophetic word from many of the organizers and and the, the leaders, the activists, who pointed out that there is no justice for the George Floyds and Breonna Taylors of the world. There's no justice. Even in the rare case that there's some accountability when George Floyd's murderer was found guilty or when a victim's family is paid out a huge sum of money, that's still not justice. Justice would be living in a world where this stuff doesn't happen. Justice would be if these people were alive with their families today. That would be justice. The story of Job is confronting us with the fact that the universe is not just. This is where some of my um, more progressive, uh, spiritually attuned friends kind of lose me a little bit. Uh, when they talk about the universe as like a fill-in for God, you know? I don't know if you've ever heard anyone do this, but like, you know, I'm putting something out into the universe today, or, or just trust the universe. If that works for you, fantastic, zero judgment. It just doesn't work for me. Um, the universe is a jerk, you guys. The universe 
is a cold, dark, mostly empty void that is hostile to life. We only know for sure of one place in the universe where life can actually survive and thrive, one little blue rock. Try living anywhere else and the universe will kill you. <laughs> um, I don't wanna get too dark. I don't wanna get like too morbid. Um, some of this is probably rooted in the fact that I have really bad allergies. Um, <laughs> basically anything with fur, feathers, or pollen, I'm allergic to it, so like I've, live my whole life with a very keen awareness that the universe is trying to kill me. Um, <laughs> but the universe is not just. We don't live in a just place. God might be just, but for whatever reason, God did not create a just world. The universe is not pointing us toward justice, but it just might be pointing us toward resurrection. As Christians, we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's the core of our faith, it's the whole idea of this season, but it's also a leap of faith, right? The resurrection sounds too good to be true. It goes against reason. Everything in the world around us is telling us that dead things stay dead. But maybe we just need to look a little bit closer. A seed is buried in the ground where it dies. It ceases to be a seed, only to sprout and make new life. Every winter around here, the trees lose their leaves, the ground freezes over and dies, only to come bursting forth with new life in the spring. Stars collapse in on themselves, going supernova. It's terrifying. But the resulting burst of energy creates planets and heat and every element we need for life. The universe is terrifying. It is not a safe place. The world can be scary and cruel, but that's because the moral center of the universe is not justice. It's resurrection. Resurrection does not promise us that everything's going to be okay, that it's all just going to work itself out with time if we wait. Jesus never received justice, you guys. Even after the resurrection, his conviction was never overturned. There was no penalty paid. Uh, Rome didn't issue an apology. He still got the scars on his hands, for crying out loud. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. You don't get new life without death. But the promise of resurrection is that no matter how bad, how cruel, how unjust the world gets, God is working to make things right. God is working to take the darkness of our world and transform it into light. That's the lesson Job is teaching us. It's the lesson the season of Easter teaches us, and it's written into the very fabric of the universe. Let's pray. God, thank you for the hope of resurrection. In a world that is so unfair, so unjust, in a world where innocent people suffer for no reason, God. We thank you for the promise of new life. Help us cling to the hope of resurrection, Lord. Help it to center us in those times when we're going mad with the cruelty of the world. Help us embody the hope of resurrection by living justly, preserving life, and setting the oppressed free. 
God, help us to demonstrate resurrection every day until your son returns to set things right once and for all. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.